It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 363 for October 6th, 2013. This week, phishing attacks are becoming more sophisticated. Laptops will still have to be stowed on airliners during takeoff and landing, but the FAA gives the green light to smaller devices. In short circuits, beware the WhatsApp fraud. Subscribing to publishers' backlist books. No more comments on the popular science website. And the Apple spaceship. Oh, and by the way, happy Mad Hatter Day. Phishing attacks used to be relatively easy to spot. The message that claimed to be from your bank showed the logo of a bank you've never heard of, and hovering the mouse cursor over a link immediately revealed the ploy. The message appeared to have been written by somebody who had flunked third grade English. Well, things have changed. Today's phishing attacks can fool just about anybody. A recent white paper by Webroot explained the changes and raised some questions, so I reached out to Chip Witt, the company's Director of Product Management and Enterprise for OEM clients. I asked Chip to start by defining phishing, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Phishing is a type of email fraud which the perpetrator sends out legitimate-looking email in an attempt to gather personal or financial information from the recipients. Typically, the messages also appear to be coming from a very well-known and trustworthy website, which is how they lure people in to click the links. Some of the research I have seen suggests that mass email phishing attempts actually serve crooks better when they are obvious phonies. That's because only the least intelligent people are going to fall for the obvious phonies, and they tend to be the easiest marks. There are lots of automated protective measures uh, that have been put in place over the years uh, because these kinds of messages really are pretty easy to identify. So let's talk about some of the procedures that are used to catch these these early obvious frauds. The, the first one that businesses tend to use is training employees, and we're, you know, uh, as a user, uh, in your home or, or smaller, uh, small office or home office, you, you basically learn to look for obvious things like misspelling in words or links that um, may say one thing, but when you hover over them with your, your browser or your uh, email reader, they read as something completely different. And those are the ones that are really just sort of the, the gritty, ugly phishing attempts that are what we term phishing 1.0 in, in, in a white paper that we recently authored. Um, there's also other things that can be used uh, by uh, filtering systems in email um, for like doing basic reputation analysis of domains, using blacklists, even using signature recognition um, to actually catch obvious uh, attachments that are, are, are part of a fraud, fraud email. These things are changing considerably. Uh, as a matter of fact, just a minute or so before uh, we started talking, I received uh, an email that from a service called WhatsApp, which recently added an option to send voicemail messages, and it did that within the past month. And already fraudsters are sending really what are pretty darn realistic messages that claim a new voice message is available. And in fact, that's something I'll be talking about later in, in today's program. But clicking on the link takes the victim to a, to a website that actually tries to install malware. So if you're a WhatsApp user, the message probably wouldn't raise a lot of red flags. 
unless you hover your mouse over the cursor and you realize that, you know, it isn't really going to go to WhatsApp, it goes somewhere else. So what, what do protective applications do to differentiate these kinds of messages, the ones that really look real from the fakes? That's, that's a really great question because actually we've kind of transitioned into what we're, we, WebRoot terms phishing 2.0 attacks, where they're actually simulating real business emails. You can't really discern them from websites. Actually, uh, we, we had a really good internal demonstration where um, one of our, our engineers showed how people can actually go out online and buy a phishing kit for zero to uh, any number of thousands of dollars, depending on the sophistication that they need, and can actually perpetrate a phishing attack really easily just by capturing an email or a, a website and using that as part of the phishing attempt. And uh, it, it's, it's pretty easy to do. So what, what we actually do to capture that in, in WebRoot's case is we actually have real-time anti-phishing technology that evaluates web traffic to identify phishing sites based on hundreds of factors in, in the actual destination URL, including the source domain, spoofed IP address keywords, patterns in the text, size and type of attachments, the presence of zipped and encrypted attachments, um, presence of uh, disguised or misleading shortened links, um, basically evaluating the whole set of information that's present in that URL to use machine learning on the back end to decide whether or not that is a fish or not. And we actually have incorporated that into several of our services to actually do this type of work. So we actually have a, a service that is a web security service. So it, it evaluates every URL by scoring each requested web page for phishing risk. And it, it does this through analyzing the requests uh, of the content of the page and the reputation information of the domain, looking at history, age, location, links, and other contextual behavioral data. So it's, it's, it's not just a matter of looking at the content anymore. It's about actually looking at the actual details and attributes that are associated with the site from the IP address, the URL, uh, and, and the reputation thereof. Now, when somebody sets up a, a phishing uh, expedition, if we will, obviously they have a reason for doing that. There's, there's some economic benefit that, uh, that they're going to get. What are the, the people who run these things looking for? A lot of times they're looking to actually steal credentials. So if you look at the banking fraud, um, phishing attempts that are you know, perpetrating themselves as a you know, major bank, you, you basically get the email and you're enticed to check your balance or to look at you know, uh, uh, deals or, or what have you through your bank, you click on the link, you go to the page, and it looks just like the bank's page. You can't discern it you know, from the naked eye. And what do you do when you go to your bank page? you log in with your username and password. So once that happens, um, you're actually giving up those credentials to your actual bank account to that fraudster that's actually put that page in place. Now what's really insidious about these phishing attempts is that the information that you enter to log in is actually not only captured, but it's also passed on to the real legitimate website. And then from that point on, you're actually logged into the bank page. So it basically is capturing that information to make use of it for financial purposes. And so that's, that's typically what a fraud fraudster is actually looking for. So this would kind of be what a security expert might refer to as a man-in-the-middle attack? Absolutely. Some of the early phishing attempts, as, as we talked about earlier, were just obviously phonies. And it was, it was fairly easy to, to teach people, here's a link. Do not click the link. Practice, do not clicking this link. But but fraudsters are, are inventive, uh, and over the years they've improved their methods a lot. The elite crooks seem to actually seem to have refined their methods such that they're targeting new kinds of victims, people in 
positions uh, of management in companies and government agencies. These are obviously more involved attacks. The preparation is a lot more labor intensive for the crooks, but I would think the potential payoff would be huge. So talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and, uh, well, uh, the, the why is, is pretty obvious because they want the money. From this perspective, this is actually where phishing, you, you may hear the term spear phishing. Spear phishing is, is really where you actually have a phishing attack that is targeted to a specific set or individual, uh, set of users or an individual. And so the way that they perpetrate this sort of crime is really first by targeting. So looking for people um, in an organization that may ship a lot of packages or may book travel or do banking. And if you think of yourself in these roles, right, uh, how many times are you waiting for a package? You know, you, you've ordered something and you're waiting for it. All, all of us have done this. You know, we've ordered packages and we see those tracking numbers come in and it's really, you know, wow, I want to see when it's coming and you click that link. So targeting people that are likely to fall into those categories, especially in businesses, is, is, is a big deal. Second after targeting is reconnaissance. So in order for a phishing attempt to be um, really targeted and really effective, the more personal it is, the better success is. So going out and looking for personal information, email addresses, et cetera, via company websites, uh, industry and professional associations, social networks. Social networks are becoming, to, uh, becoming a huge uh, feeding frenzy for phishing attempts. So phishing isn't just email, by the way. Phishing can also be perpetrated via a, a, a post in a, in a Facebook page or a LinkedIn page um, and, and could do the same things. So it's basically all to entice somebody to click on a link. And so social networking is a very rich, rich field there, not only for gathering information, but for also perpetrating crime. Then uh, after reconnaissance, um, it's basically the creating of the, the phishing emails. Um, so mimicking common businesses or personal emails coupled with the details gathered during the reconnaissance makes it a very believable type of communication, one that you may be expecting or have seen on a regular basis coming from you know, UPS or, or some other company that you do packages with um, or via the, the traveling or bank or what, what have you. So the, the creation of that spear phishing email is actually really makes it more convincing. Um, and if you kind of look at some examples of this, we, we've actually, WebRoot has done a really good job of capturing some really good research on this. So like, for instance, faculty and staff at several universities received emails seemingly from their IT departments requiring that they send their email credentials to retain access to their university email accounts. That's something that under certain circumstances you would trust that email and immediately you know, provide that information. So social engineering is a big aspect of this. So phishing has actually become a lot more business-like. We've got, we've got market research, we've got prospecting, and we've got really precise targeting. Cybercrime is a huge business bill, um, and that's why companies like Webroot are out here is to protect users and, and make sure that these cybercriminals have, uh, have an even match. Uh, for wits and, 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 and protecting the user. To kind of go a little bit further in the types of phishing attacks, the other things that actually can happen uh, as a result of phishing attacks is the uh, implantation of malware on the victim's computer and uh, exploiting the breach. So some of the uh, sites you've heard of, uh, um, Active Persistent Threats or APTs, those are actual um, threats that are uh, initiated by a phishing email 
get you to go to a website that installs what's called a drive-by download onto your machine without your permission, and you could be part of a botnet or have malicious software running on your machine unbeknownst to you, and that can then be exploited by that same cyber criminal to do other things, including attack other machines or perpetrate other sorts of things. One of the, I, I read a recent article on uh, a really high rise in advertising fraud, so basically click-through links um, and using botnets to click on those links so that people get paid for advertising that isn't legitimate users uh, visiting sites. Really interesting stuff. Yeah, along that line, there was a, a message I received earlier today that talked about automobiles, half price until the end of the government shutdown. Act now, because <laughs> the instant that the uh, shutdown ends, this offer goes away. And, well, and the other thing, too, that that calls out is the timeliness of the attacks, right? They're actually trying to capitalize on a, uh, a window of time, which is something else that WebRoot is actually very proud of. Our technology um, is capable of uh, finding phishing sites um, three to five days ahead of our competitors. And the reason why we, do, why we can say that is because we actually go out and, and crawl things real time. Um, the average site um, for um, uh, phishing attempt, so the URL that's embedded in a phishing attempt, is usually about 11 hours. So what that means is the standard means of protection in basically uh, finding that phishing website, identifying it as a fraud, getting a signature update or getting it into a database somewhere takes longer than the sites are actually up and functioning. So by the time you, know, you get a definition from a standard vendor, chances are that phishing site is long gone or the web page that it was residing on um, is back to normal and is, is no longer a malicious threat. And that, that's where WebRoot is a real differentiator. We actually are, are a cloud-based security SaaS company that does things in real time in the cloud. And that's very, very important. It makes us a, 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 a true player in this arena because we have tremendous amounts of machine learning and capabilities in the cloud that can do this type of assessment real time and, and expose threats before they can actually um, consume users with, with bad stuff, malicious software, malicious downloads, or perpetrate fraud through through stealing credentials. One of the statements that uh, was in your Phishing 2.0 white paper, and there'll be a link on the website uh, so that anybody who wants to uh, to download that and take a look at it can get it, suggests that uh, companies should restrict access to sites that offer pornography and gambling because there's a high probability those sites will have been compromised. Now, obviously, uh, companies have to restrict access to sites such as those if for no other reason than, than HR considerations. But the common understanding among a lot of people is, and it may be completely wrong, is that uh, sites of that type, sites that, that offer pornography, sites that offer gambling, actually tend to be pretty safe because they want paying customers to keep coming back. They're not actually out there trying to take over a machine. So I'm, I'm wondering if, the if that information is incorrect or if something has been changing recently. I, actually, I think that that's a really interesting question with a probably a more complex answer than I have, have time to give you. I think what we actually are seeing is that the same types of site reproductions that we see for like banking fraud in phishing emails are also showing up for pornography. So somebody could get an email trying to lure them to a cam site or some sort of a site that, that you know, is not necessarily something you would do in the workplace anyway, but um, th that 
takes you to a site that looks very legitimate, like a maybe maybe a site that you are familiar with, but is in fact something completely different and installs software and and does other things. I have to agree that it's it's probably true that legitimate sites that are making money um, at, at, as a core of their business to to provide those types of services probably are are not necessarily at the core of the problem. But the fact is, it's almost impossible for someone a normal user to discern the difference between a, a, a good porn site and a bad porn site. And I, I can't believe I just said that out loud, but you, you get what I mean. <laughs> I get what you mean. <laughs> now, Webroot offers a number of protective applications. Some are for large enterprises. Uh, there are some for small businesses. Uh, I think you've even got some for home users. In closing, let's talk a little bit about the range of products you have to offer. We have a wide range of, of products that are uh, protecting uh, uh, OEM enterprises, so uh, co- companies that are needing to embed technology into products that they're selling. So our real-time anti-phishing service is something that is used by our OEM partners to actually provide real-time feedback on websites that um, need to be checked for, for phishing content. Um, and that, that's you know something that uh, we, we have several really big partnerships that, that we actually leverage with, with that technology. We also um, use that same service and embed it into our enterprise product uh, around web security. So we have uh, um, WebRoot Secure Anywhere um, web security service that is basically a web filtering solution. So in kind of talking about um, uh, the, the phishing 2.0 paper, it's actually speaking specifically to that, that particular product, and enterprises tend to use that. We also have a range of endpoint security applications that protect against malware um, and um, website fraud, et cetera. Um, WSA 2014 is our endpoint product uh, that uh, is incorporating this real-time anti-phishing technology to actually protect users from um, uh, phishing threats. And so we've been doing this for quite a while and have, have, have done quite well with our enterprise and OEM partners, and now we're actually bringing that into our consumer products so that consumers can also benefit from that, that great technology. Chip Witt, the Director of Product Management and Enterprise for OEM Clients from Webroot. The white paper that Chip and I discussed is called Phishing 2.0, and you can download it from a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It appears that the FAA is on the verge of making some significant changes in rules that will allow airline passengers to continue using their smartphones and tablets during takeoff and landing. Larger devices such as laptops will still need to be stowed. This is a long overdue common sense decision. I've been reading Cockpit Confidential, a book by pilot Patrick Smith. One of the questions that Smith addressed in the book is this one. What is the lowdown on cell phones and portable electronic devices? Are they really dangerous to flight? Here's a considerably condensed version of his answer. People want a simple, fits-all answer. Unfortunately, there isn't one. It depends on the gadget and how and when the gadget is used. In theory, an old or poorly shielded computer can emit harmful energy. However, the main reasons laptops need to be put away for takeoff and landing is to prevent them from becoming high-speed projectiles during a sudden deceleration or impact and to help keep passengers clear if there's an evacuation. 
From an interference perspective, it's tough to take a prohibition against tablets seriously, now that many pilots are using tablets in the cockpit. The projectile argument would appear similarly specious. Nobody wants an iPad whizzing into his or her forehead at 180 miles an hour, but hardback books are just as heavy, if not heavier. Can cellular communications really disrupt cockpit equipment? The answer is potentially yes, but in all likelihood, no. The airlines and the FAA are merely erring on the better safe than sorry side. As I said, that is a very condensed version of his answer. If you want to read the whole answer, you'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The new rules should allow airline passengers to use personal electronic devices to read, play games, watch movies, and listen to music when planes are on the ground or flying below 10,000 feet. Currently, all such devices must be turned off at those times, and they're used only above 10,000 feet. Passengers still will not be allowed to send text messages, browse the web, or check their email after the plane's doors have been closed. These activities will still be allowed on planes that have built-in Wi-Fi, but that will be turned on only when the plane is above 10,000 feet. The use of cell phones to make voice calls is not addressed, and therefore it will continue to be disallowed. The recommendation follows a year-long review of the technologies involved. It recommends that airlines demonstrate that their planes will not be harmed by electronic interference. But because many airlines already have installed onboard Wi-Fi, they've already completed that requirement. Circuits, WhatsApp Messenger is a mobile instant messaging subscription service for smartphones. It allows users to send text messages, images, video, and recently audio messages. It runs on Android, Blackberry, iOS, Windows Phone, and a few other devices. There is no version of WhatsApp for desktop or notebook computers, but that doesn't stop fraudsters from sending messages that claim to be from the service. You'll see an example of one of the phony messages on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You probably wouldn't click on it, but a surprising number of people probably do. The voice messaging component is relatively new, released within the last month. And Trend Micro says that people have been receiving messages such as the one you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website. What happens if you click that inviting listen button? Well, you'll be taken to a malware site that is designed to figure out what type of computer or smartphone you're using and then attempt to install malicious software. Windows users will receive a Java file that so far doesn't seem to do anything, at least not on a computer. Possibly it's one component of a multi-part attack. These are attacks that download seemingly harmless pieces that don't become dangerous until everything is present. Or it might be that the malicious Java file, which is called browserupdateinstaller.jar, is intended for those who access their emails via an application that depends on Java. On an Android device, users will be told that they need to update their web browser, and if they agree, then the malware is going to be loaded. 
And after that, the malware will start sending text messages to specific phone numbers, and it'll attempt to convince the user to download yet another piece of malware. An unwary iOS user who clicks on the link will see a download progress bar, but that's about all. The operating system's restrictions block installation of the application itself. Trend Micro says phones that have been jailbroken, though, might still be susceptible to attack. Books are usually priced in the $10 to $20 range, but the online service Scribbage thinks that people would be willing to pay $10 a month for access to backlist books. Actually, it's $9.95. Can't you just say $10? And by the way, that's backlist, not blacklist. Scribbage's website has 80 million visitors a month and hopes to create a Netflix-like subscription service for books. Harper Collins has signed up for the service, although the idea isn't exactly new in the publishing industry. This is the first time that it's begun to look like a reality. And there's even some competition. Oysterbooks.com opened last month, offering access to more than 100,000 books for the same price, $10, sorry, $9.95 per month. Publishers have watched how music, television programs, and even radio have changed in a digital age, and they realize that publishing must continue to change, too. The trouble at this time for Scribbit is that only one major publisher has signed on. The model could fall apart if each publisher tries to set up its own service at 10 bucks a month. That probably wouldn't fly. This is a place where the cable television model, where everybody gets everything, whether they want it or not, will probably be the only way to success. Scribbit says that subscribers may store up to 10 books at a time and read them on mobile apps, computers, and e-readers. And maybe you're wondering what a publisher's backlist is? Well, essentially, it's the publisher's list of older books that are still in print. In other words, your $10 subscription fee won't buy you the latest offerings and bestsellers, but it will give you access to books from a year or two ago. online content director of popular science, Suzanne Labar, recently wrote on the magazine's website that effective immediately, comments will no longer be accepted. The internet is supposed to be about free and open discussion, but as anybody who's read the comments on just about any website will be well aware, discussions that begin reasonably are quickly overwhelmed by trolls, the people who exist just to stir up trouble, and spam bots, the automated applications that send spam. Unfortunately, this all seems to be the wave of the future. Labar wrote, and I quote, It wasn't a decision we made lightly. As the news arm of a 141-year-old science and technology magazine, we are as committed to fostering lively intellectual debate as we are to spreading the word of science far and wide. The problem is when trolls and spam bots overwhelm the former, diminishing our ability to do the latter. Although the site has many delightful, thought-provoking commenters, the message says, even a fractious minority wields enough power to skew a reader's perception of a story. This isn't one person's opinion, by the way. I mean, this, after all, this is Science Magazine. And the bar cites a University of Wisconsin-Madison professor, Dominique Bussard, who led a research team in which 1,183 Americans read a fake blog post on nanotechnology and revealed in survey questions how they felt about the subject. 
Then those in the research project were divided into two groups. One read epithet and insult-laden comments. The others read civil comments. Brossard and her co-author, Dietram Schufle, wrote an op-ed article for the New York Times to explain the results. They found that uncivil comments polarized readers and often changed participants' opinions of the story. In explaining the decision at Popular Science, Labar wrote, If you carry out those results to their logical end, commenters shape public opinion, public opinion shapes public policy, public policy shapes how and whether and what research gets funded, you start to see why we feel compelled to hit the off switch. It's sad that the anti-science crowd has forced popular science to make this change, but it's understandable at a time when people who know absolutely nothing about science seem to feel that their ignorance has value that is equal to somebody else's study, research, and knowledge. Science isn't perfect. It never will be. Scientists know this, though, and that's why our understanding of how things work continues to evolve. Electronically through the San Jose Mercury News this week, I encountered an article by Patrick May about Apple's new, well, pick a term here, spaceship, donut, flying saucer, rounded pentagon, bicycle tire, hula hoop. It's uh, about a building that Apple wants to build, maybe. It's being referred to as the building that will be Silicon Valley's most iconic landmark. And now it doesn't look like an apple. It's round. Public discussions that could determine the building's fate began this week. It's a pretty amazing-looking structure. You'll find a picture of it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Or perhaps more accurately, you will find an artist's rendition of the proposed building. In the article, May says the building project, which Cupertino Mayor Oren Mahoney says is now rivaled only by One World Trade Center in New York City in terms of scope and size, is designed by world-famous architect Sir Norman Foster, with its four stories and 2.8 million square feet expected to house up to 14,200 employees. The architectural extravaganza is sure to draw tourists from around the world, planting Silicon Valley firmly on the map of ultra-cool corporate addresses. But first, the Planning Commission has to approve the design, and there are some concerns about traffic on I-280 in Cupertino. The article says that amenities include three restaurants totaling 120,000 square feet, along with a corporate auditorium of also 120,000 square feet, fitness centers, and a large testing and data center. You can read May's full article on the Mercury News website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And I have just one word. Wow. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.